The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Catherine Laffrey, you're listening to a special crossover edition of The Secrets of Sacred Art with The Secrets of TV and Movies. Today we're going to unearth the hidden treasures, history, and sacred art in the 2014 film Monuments Men. Joining me today is my Secrets of Sacred Art co-host, Alex Murray. Hello, Alex. Howdy, Catherine. <laughs> and our first ever guest panelist, multi-show SQPN veteran, Thomas Salerno. <laughs> Hi, hey, Thomas. Catherine. It's good to be here with you guys. All right, Thomas, I got to ask, how many different SQPN shows have you done? Okay. First, I was on Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Then I was part of the reboot of Secrets of Middle Earth, and I still am. I'm, I'm the host there most weeks. And if you count coffee and comics as a separate show from movies and TV shows, I guess that would make three. And I guess this would technically be my my fourth show that I'm on. Oh, wait, no. Then there's Secrets of Star Wars. Which I was going to say, Secrets of Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm all over the place on SQPN. So we've we've got a ways to go, Catherine. That's right. I'm sticking with what we do best. There you go. Just so everyone can see all these great episodes, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, your favorite podcast app on the StarQuest YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia, where you can watch this show with all the great art. So we record this as a video so that you can see all the art that we're going to talk about today. So a quick review. Well, that's a first of, for me for SQPN, though. First time I'm on video. Interesting. First time yeah. on video. Everybody gets to see your smiley face. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so let's do a quick wrap up of this movie, a one sentence version but I'm going to give a little more detail. This movie was released in February of 2014. So actually, it almost was released earlier. So it was like 10 years ago. It's based on the true story of the greatest treasure hunt in history. The Monuments Men is an action drama focused on an unlikely World War II task force of museum directors, curators, and art historians going into Germany to rescue masterpieces and return them to the rightful owner. The Monuments Men found themselves in a race against time to avoid destruction of thousands of years of culture. They would risk their lives to protect and defend mankind's greatest achievements. What a great show. So I gotta ask, did anyone ever know this story before this movie came out? Thomas? I did not. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Let me let the guest speak. I did know about it before. I hadn't read the book. I only read the book after seeing the movie. But I was vaguely aware of this story just because I'm such a huge World War II buff. And I've watched World War II documentaries on TV since I was young. So I was aware of the large scale Nazi art thefts and that there was a U.S. Army effort to retrieve them. I didn't know any of the details, though, until seeing the movie and then later reading the book. So, yeah, I did know about the story, but it was really great to find out more about it. And to know that there was a book about it that I could read, because that's one of my other hobbies is reading World War II books. Nice. So do you have it on your bookshelf? No, actually, I got it from the library and read it. I'll probably download it onto my Kindle, though, one of these days. 
How about I you, I didn't Alex? know anything. I was going to say, I didn't know. I probably know more about World War II from my father-in-law's experience. He was a bomber pilot. He flew a Lancaster bomber during World War II and he's passed away many years. But so I, and here, World War II is very much in the consciousness of people in Britain. It really is something that's quite tangible. So I think I've just absorbed a lot just living over here. And obviously you hear about a lot of the extraordinary stories that of just survival and the tenacity of the British people. And, but the only thing I knew about Nazi thievery was from Indiana Jones. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like that this is kind of a real Indiana Jones story. Yeah, it is. You know? It really is. Yeah, and, it's amazing. And like before we get too deep into it, I will say that there there is another book, not written by the same author as Monuments Men, but there's another book that focuses specifically on the artifact thefts, like mm. the archaeology artifact thefts. Yeah, I, this yeah. one I actually have on my bookshelf. It's called <laughs> The Master Plan. And it's oh, all about oh. the Das Ananerba, which was a section of the SS specifically devoted to basically looting museums and archaeological sites across Europe and in Africa and the Middle East, trying to prove this fictitious baloney about the, Ar- yeah. the, the Aryan race and stuff. And also because some people like Himmler really did believe that some of these artifacts had magic powers and wanted <laughs> to use them for their own. Like the more you dig into that stuff, the more it's truth is stranger than fiction, specifically the high ranking people in the SS had some of the most bonkers beliefs about this stuff that you could ever imagine. It's real Indiana Jones stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, I guess this is an example of really being trapped in a very small echo chamber where you can yeah. <laughs> some ideas come out and nobody goes, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> you read this stuff and you're like. What? That's insane. Who would ever believe that? <laughs> who, had, yeah. who was not embarrassed enough to say that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or did yeah. they say it and they don't exist anymore? Yeah. <laughs> I exactly. have to say, though, the first time I saw this movie, I remember seeing all the pieces of art that they showed and went, wait a minute. I learned about that in art class and they never said anything about this being lost in time and stolen away and it was just so strange going wait I never knew that this had ever left the place that it was originally created for so I found that fascinating and then for me this is probably my way of ranking a really good movie it's like a three tissue box movie (laughs) ah yeah it just made me ball over and over again so. Yeah, I have to admit there were some scenes where I was like, I think I'm going to go load the dishwasher now and come <laughs> back when this is over. <laughs> I was just thinking about this about an hour or two before we recorded. But I think this movie is it's a really good movie for people who don't really like World War Two films or war films in general, because I know war films can be pretty intense for some people. But in Monuments Men, there's really only two or three brief shootouts. And you don't have to see any of the Nazi death camps or any of that stuff. If you don't like World War II movies or war films in general, but you like movies with an eclectic cast and a lot of interesting historical drama, then Monuments Men might be for you if you're reticent about this genre normally. I think if you like Indiana Jones, like the originals, I think you would really like this film, especially because it's based on the true stories, these fascinating events. And 
Do you know, again, before we dive too deeply into it, how close so many treasures were to being lost? Yeah. We know that there were really things that were lost, but when you think about, they were so close. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Thomas, you mentioned the cast and how, what a great cast this was. First of all, directed by George Clooney. I do like his work. Written and produced by George Clooney and Grant Heslov. Loosely based on the 2007 nonfiction book, Monuments Men. And there's also, oh, that was written by Robert Etzel and Brent Witter. So the cast, though, my goodness, George Clooney, Matt Damon, Bill Murray, Kate Blanchett, John Goodman, John Dujardin, Hugh Bonneville, Bob, is it Balabin? I think I said her. And Dimitri Leononis or Leonodas. Great cast. Leonidas. Leonidas. Thank you. (laughs) Great cast. I love movies like this where you have a big cast where no one has to necessarily be the one star, but all of them together create the essence of the movie. So what'd you guys think of this casting, Thomas? (laughs) Yeah, I like that it's an ensemble film. I like that we get to see all these different people. I thought every, everybody did a great job. I like John Goodman, especially. I like most things he's in, so I was glad to see that. It was interesting to see Bill Murray in something that's not a straight-up comedy. And I think Matt Damon and George Clooney, of course, were great. And it just felt, yeah, it felt like a buddy movie, but with more than two people. This sort of buddy sort of team. I liked it. I liked it a lot. I thought all the actors did a tremendous job. And Kate Blanchett, of course, as the, oh, she was uh, the, great in the this. museum person. She was great. What'd you think, Alex? Well, I love Bill Murray so much. <laughs> I just, I will most likely, if he's in something, I'll go, okay, I'll give it a, I'll give it a go. Cause I really like him. And I agree. I think that the cast was, it fit together so well, or they all fit together so well. And yeah, it was like a buddy movie. But what I think comes across in terms of, how the characters were written and how they interacted with each other. You really, the focus was on the art, rescuing the art. And you could see, so no one was ever more heavily focused on than anybody else. They, it was great because I think if we've all had the opportunity, if you have to work with a team and if the team has the same goal, it's a completely different experience than if there's somebody who's trying to move ahead or trying to, what, however it works out. And so I think the way characters were written, they were written so that you as the viewer cared as much about what they were trying to do as they did. And you didn't get distracted by any individual character because they were super amazing. They were all amazing. <laughs> Yeah, there's a little bit of each one of them that kind of shine through. And just Bill Murray in his first scene where he's the architect up there on the scaffolding and just the way he turns around is like his classic little shrugs, the things he does without saying a word, I think are what make him an amazing actor. It was classic. And then just seeing a rifle handed to him, I went right to stripes. I was just oh. so funny. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. That's oh a throwback right there. But I loved how George Clooney approached this whole story, because like we said, this could be really heavy. This is World War II. You're going into Germany where places have been destroyed. But he approached this as this is not a civics lesson. We want to tell a really great story that a lot of people don't know. 
And for me, it made me want to know more. My goodness, just in the last few days, watching the movie again, I go, next thing I know, hours have gone by because I've been following one link after another going, where are these people now? And where's this art now? And it's really just a great movie that way to get you interested in finding more things. So how do you like his approach to this as not a civics lesson? Who goes first, shall I say? Go ahead, Al. I think it's a good way to draw people in. I, if it was a documentary on World War II, because I'm not a World War II buff, I certainly respect what happened and revere the people who fought and won the war. I'm less likely to delve myself into something like a book or a documentary but I will watch a movie. And so it was something that really drew me in. And again, having seen this film and living where I live, we actually have a World War II weekend in in our village. And people come from all over the country. And we have American soldiers here. They're not American. They're Brits dressed like American soldiers. And they have the Jeeps. And they sometimes they try to do the accent. Other times, especially when I open my mouth, they're like, okay, we're not going to do the accent. <laughs> we're not going to try. <laughs> but, but it definitely engaged me as somebody. This is definitely going to be in the fore of my mind when I go to this World War II weekend because it's so amazing. And yeah, it's really engaging and makes it much more interesting for a novice. I'm not even a novice, just outside in the perimeter, much more engaged in this whole part of history. Yeah, even as somebody who's read and learned a lot about World War II, and I would never say that I'm an expert in it at all. I know a lot of random facts about it, but I don't have the deep historical knowledge. So I'm sure that there are historians out there who would pick this movie apart with everything that is not super historically accurate. But I liked that George Clooney went and made a fun movie first. That he tried to tell a fun and engaging and entertaining story with characters that you liked. Because for especially for the casual movie going audience, yeah, that, that's how you get them interested in history. It has to be an engaging story about cool characters first. And then if people want to go more, they learn more, they can delve into all the historical sources and documentaries and books that there are. World War II yeah, is basically a whole industry to the point where, yeah, there are festivals. You know, yeah. Are there festivals it. in the United States as well? Do they do? Uh, yeah, occasionally. Weekends and things. OK, I, I've been to one here where I am on Long Island where they did a, a World War II weekend because they had there is the Museum of American Armor here on okay. Long Island. And one day they just decided to roll into the it was such a funny mashup of time periods because they decided to hold the <laughs> World War II weekend at the American Revolution Village. So you have these like <laughs> oh all these gosh. American Revolution houses and stuff like that with GIs walking around in Jeeps and a Sherman tank trundles by. And you're just like, wow, this is <laughs> but it was like the only sort of open field kind of area where yeah. they can hold this. And I know in New Orleans, it's on my bucket list to go there is the National World War II Museum. Oh, okay. where they, they okay. have a lot of great because New Orleans is where the, the Higgins boat was built, which is the famous boats that you see on D-Day that have the flat top that the front that comes okay. down and all the soldiers run out. The factory that built those was in New Orleans. And that's such an iconic yeah. World War II. If anyone knows anything about World War II, they know about D-Day. Yeah. So they, they had know to, those boats. They know yeah. those boats. So they put the World War II museum there. And yet it's definitely still 
in the consciousness. If Even if people yeah. don't know a lot about history, they have grandparents or at this point, great grandparents who were in it. Both of my grandfathers were veterans of World War II. And I think that's what made me interested in it because I really didn't get to talk to them much about it. My my maternal grandfather, who was in the Battle of the Bulge, he died before I was born. And then my paternal grandfather was in the Philippines, but he died when I was seven. So I never really yeah. got the chance to hear their stories. And when I knew they were in this titanic event, this huge world struggle, it just made me want to learn more about it. I guess a way to get closer to these two men exactly. who I didn't really know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Since we, when hearing you say that, because we watched this and trying to get prepared for this discussion, it prompted my husband and I to go and dig up my father-in-law's, just his photographs. We have a photographic journal of his bombing raids and just his life as this Royal Air Force pilot. We never did find the maps, Catherine. We yeah. have. My husband inherited the bombing maps of Germany from his father. Yeah. And they're printed on linen and they're somewhere in the house. Do you know it's one of those things? It's somewhere here. We'll find it. But we found, we just found so much and it does bring you closer to this person that isn't, for many people, there's, it's living memory or even just one generation over. It's a really special time. And it's interesting because we recently were going through my mom's dad's effects because my my grandmother passed away a few years back. We were going through her husband's things and it all we all I knew about him was that he was, quote unquote, a radio man in the Battle of the Bulge. And I always thought that meant, OK, he was carrying one of those big radio packs on his back with the giant antenna and stuff. But no, we actually found like his demob records, his demobilization records from when he left the army. And no, he was an engineer. What he did with radios was that he built state of the art microwave transmitter towers during the battle <laughs> while the battle is going on, by the way. And in fact, his unit got a citation for conspicuous gallantry under fire because they're just engineers. And they have to build this stuff while the battle is going on around them. And this was like state-of-the-art technology for the time. It was wireless microwave radio was like a new thing. And that just opened up a whole new, because like I said, all I knew about him was that he worked with radios. And to find these records from yeah. the late 40s and learn all this stuff, it was just fascinating. It's a World War II is such an endless oh, hole yeah. that you can just go down and yes, find yes, all Because yeah. so many people were in it. Everybody's got a story. So my grandfather, my dad's dad, had died on Leyte Island. And there isn't a time that we don't watch documentaries to, in hopes that maybe he'll be one of those guys that we'll see run by. It's just, oh, maybe that's him. And then his cousin, who they were the same age, he was a B-17 bomber pilot. So he did a lot of the bombing runs. We got to meet him. And that was really just neat, even discovering him, because he had changed his name. Our last name was Shimyankovsky, 14 letters long. He changed it to Simmons so it fit better <laughs> on his records. But when he told us about doing the bombing runs and coming back with a plane full of holes and barely landing yeah. it and stuff like that, yeah. it was fascinating. He actually talked about how they would use cathedrals as waypoints. So they purposely wouldn't bomb the cathedral so they'd be able to find their way around. No fancy GPS back then. That's so, true. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> I did find a neat little artifact I wanted to share. Oh. This was from 
the New Charlotte News back in 1944. And I just love this map because it sets us to understand where all the battle lines were converging. We have the Russian line coming in from the east and you've got the Americans coming in from the south with the Brits and the and also from the north and just watching those lines pushes are all working in toward Berlin and trying to get all of this under control. Yeah. Just and at this point, you can tell Germany's finished. Yeah. Because they're surrounded. Yeah. And the, yeah, the there's thing no is, place to go. Yeah, there's no place to go. There's no place to retreat to except back into Germany. Mm-hmm. And I remember I listen to a World War II podcast pretty regularly. And they've said multiple times on the show, any sane government would have capitulated. But because they're Nazis, they when they're yeah. ide- fascist ideologues, they have to fight to the bitter end, the last man, the last bullet. And, yeah. and you get some of that in this movie later on when Hitler issues yes. his Nero decree. If I'm going down, I'm taking everything of value with. Yeah. So let's actually start talking through the movie because, my goodness, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> it's going to be two parts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the opening scene alone where you hear the hammer and nail of them taking down the Ghent altarpiece and packaging it up and the priests are trying to save it. And that was something that's happened all across Europe and still happens in places today. I actually heard someone talking about her parents in Cuba that people had taken stained glass windows and things out of the churches and buried them in their backyards in hopes mm-hmm. that we'll be able to put them back up in the future. Yeah. So it was a pretty yeah. common practice to save things from destruction. Yeah, that actually happened here. If you go to Winchester Cathedral during the Reformation and when the medieval stained glass windows were smashed, people went in and took it and they saved the stained glass windows for centuries. It was passed down from generation to generation And then when it was safe to bring them out, they did. And so it's like this abstract collage of stained glass windows. And it's not like a new idea. They just put the medieval glass back that they found. So, yeah, it's been going on for a long time. And then how about the event? I love the scene of watching them, the whole town, trying to save Da Vinci's Last Supper. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this one, it reminded me, I wrote in my notes, I said, the frenzy of the people trying to save it. It was almost like they were trying to save a life, like somebody Mm -hmm. in triage and everybody running around doing whatever they can to save this person. But what they were trying to save was this magnificent piece of art. I remember that scene from the second book because the author of Monuments Men actually wrote a second book just about Italy, which I've read. It's called Saving Italy. And he goes into a lot of detail about that scene where they're trying to save the Last Supper. And how yeah. it, it really came down to the wire. It was almost ruined. Yeah, it was just exactly. fascinating. So after all this opening sequence, we get the pitch to FDR. And I loved that pitch scene. What'd you guys think of that, Alex? Oh, gosh. I think it's interesting because I think, Catherine, you and I sometimes run in. I was very sympathetic to George Clooney's character because sometimes you have to convince people that art matters. And even people who are people that you think would like, oh yeah, of course they think art matters. Of course. And then when you're trying to really, whether it's not, whether it's like, maybe we should increase the budget for what we're trying to do in terms of sacred art in the church. And why would we do that? Why, this is on sale and this is much, and, and to try to convince people that art is part of what makes us human. And I speak as someone who, 
loves animals and think that animals do some pretty interesting things. <laughs> but but this is something that is unique to the human animal and it really does matter. And it has mattered ever since there have been human beings. We've always created art. And so I could my heart was beating listening to the pitch because you're thinking obviously I know <laughs> the answer was yes. But at the time it's like, why do I have to convince you of this? Look at what happened to Oh gosh, what is the name of the Benedictine Abbey that was Monte destroyed? Casino. Monte Cassino. Yeah. And you think, look at this. Look at what the Allied bombs did. Can we do something about this? And they were like, this is very... It's even <laughs> worse when you learn that they weren't even sure there were Germans in the monastery. But they decided to yeah. destroy it anyway on the off chance yeah. they were there. And you think, Wow. There's one line in the pitch that I thought was interesting, and I'm curious to hear what both of you have to say, where he's making the pitch and he says that the Ghent altarpiece is the defining monument of the Catholic faith. So what do you think? Is it the defining monument or a defining monument? Am I nitpicking? I could be. (laughs) What do you think? Yes, you first, Thomas. First, I want to back up and just generally say about the pitch, it also resonated with me being, and I don't think I told either of you this before we started, but I used to work in museums, not art museums. I worked in natural history museums before my current job. And it was a, it's a very similar thing though, trying to convince people with money that artifacts matter, that fossils matter. This science matters. We, we learn about our world and about human history. And sometimes people are just like, it's difficult for people to wrap their heads around it as something tangible. And they may say, the museum's already got all kinds of great stuff in it. We we see the displays. And it's like, yeah, you guys don't see the collections, which are in bad shape, and things are starting to deteriorate, and we need more funding so that we can save these. A lot of the stuff on display in a natural history museum is sometimes replicas. We've got the real stuff in the collections, and it's deteriorating. And it's, you know, I've seen, you know, people who I used to work for have to make similar pitches and or have have heard about it secondhand. And so, yeah, that I knew where Clooney's character was coming from in terms of the Ghent altar piece. That was an interesting statement to say, because I didn't know much about the Ghent altar piece before the movie and the book. I had heard about it. I had never seen pictures of it. And so I'm like, is that like the defining monument of the Catholic Church, maybe in, in earlier centuries, maybe, but you think nowadays you think of the Sistine Chapel or St. Peter's or something like that. I'm not the art history expert, but it just seemed like an odd, it, it definitely is, I think, a glory of our Catholic heritage. It is a beauty. I didn't know it was that big <laughs> before seeing the Ghent altarpiece, before seeing the movie. Even though I think the Ghent altarpiece is achingly beautiful. And if ever, if that is just a little glimpse of heaven, then I'm all in. It's just extraordinary. And think maybe, but I wouldn't say it's the defining piece of art in, in the Catholic world. There are just so many movements within the Catholic world in terms of art that are defining Catholic art defined Europe for hundreds of years. So how do you pick one thing? But I think he was probably referring to the artist himself or the two artists, the two brothers, the Van Eyck brothers. So I I, I just wonder if that was the, because Jan Van Eyck 
did paint some pretty extraordinary, he was extraordinary in terms of his talent as an artist. And there are many pieces of his art, there aren't that many that exist, but so I just wonder if he was maybe more referring to the artist than Catholic art. I'd say for me, it's, it's defining probably in a sense that people don't think about. Because now when you go look at it, and I was only able to see a piece of it when I was in Madrid a couple of years back, to see it out of context and out of and missing all the other parts, it was just a picture. But when you actually, and if you ever can, actually see it being used for what it was made for, to know that when the priest elevates the Eucharist and says, you know, Ece Agnus Dei, and it's right in front of the Lamb of God in the painting. And it's like, everything should just go click. Oh, this is what this is all about. It all makes yeah. more sense that way. But sadly, yeah. a lot of people won't be able to view it that way because no, of the way it's no. displayed. Yeah, but it's actually back. It's actually back at the Saint. Is it Saint Brado? I'll find it. I have Bravo. it in my notes. Yeah. Bravo. Bravo. Saint Brava Church in Ghent. I don't know if it's. It's not with an altar anymore. Yeah. See, that's that's the same thing. It's in a glass box. (laughs) Yeah. And I can understand why. But at the other side of it is it's actually, because it is sacred art, it is meant to be interactive. It's not meant to be static and viewed in kind of an objective way. It's supposed to be. All right. We're talking about it so much. We got to look at some pictures here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here is what the altarpiece looks like when it's closed. So you have the Annunciation that's across the upper four or the midway four panels. And then you have on either side of the bottom four panels are the two contributors to the Yeah, piece. the two patrons. Yeah. The patrons. Thank you. So yeah. Alex, do you have the name of the patrons for us? Do Oops, I? I didn't mean to change that. That's what it looks like open. Let's go back to the closed. I think I do. Oh, yes. Yakudis. Vidge and his wife, Lisbetta. He was a merchant. So he's a very wealthy merchant. And, and I also want to mention, if you look at the top, the three arches, those are the prophets of the Old Testament. And they are foreshadowing or foretelling of the Annunciation in the middle. And I'm not quite sure who those two, the two statues are. At the middle bottom. We will be doing a deep dive on this in a later episode That's true. of Secret Sorry. Sacred Art. So Sorry. teaser for now. All. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of teasers about this one. So, And then yeah, when so it's it opened open. up, you get this beautiful view. In the lower central rectangular portion, you have, oh, say it again, Alex. It's the, not the mystical supper. The adoration of the mystical lamb. That's it. <laughs> and then around it, we have a couple of different items. So Alex, you want to give us a little tidbits of here and there what we have? Okay. So I, I'm just looking. So on, on either side, uh, on the, at the top far sides, you have Adam and Eve. And as you come in and you can look at the top uh, on each one here, I'm pointing like it's in my house <laughs> only. Um, <laughs> you have the first murder is above Adam. And I believe so the murder of Abel. I can't quite make out what's on above Eve, but oh, so that's above like the Adam down- is the offering, and above Eve the is off- the murder. The, okay, so there you go. So you can see they juxtapose one another, and as Adam and Eve 
also are opposite of one another. And, and then as you move in to the main panel, you have Our Lady on the left and you have who would be on the right in the green, Catherine? That is St. John the Baptist. That's okay. okay. That's what I thought. But you he can was tell not. from his hairy shirt. <laughs> that's true. But I'm also, but you know, it's some, I'm so used to him holding a lamb. But then, of course, he's pointing. He's to pointing the middle, to the lamb. <laughs> to the lamb. And of course, if you go to the bottom panel with the adoration of the mystical lamb, the lamb is directly underneath Christ. And some people, there was a debate, like, who is this? Because it could be the father, because he's wearing a tiered hat, like God the Father is often depicted in um, paintings. I don't know what the whole position in Europe at this time of depicting God the Father. I know in the Baroque period, they started depicting God the Father, but for a long time, he wasn't depicted in sacred art. It was only God the Son. And and I think it is definitely God the Son because if you look at the face of Adam and the face of Christ, it's the same man. And if you look at Eve and the Blessed Mother, it's the same woman. So it's the new Adam and the new Eve. Nice. All right. Okay. Save some for the next episode, Alex. I know. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. So back to so, the movie. Yeah, I was going to say, can I just say one other thing? Maybe this is, is part of it. This is part of the movie. Bill Murray said that the Ghent altarpiece was the most desired piece of artwork in history. And I think he's referring to the fact that it has been the victim of the most thefts and attempted thievery in the history of art. It has been not an easy piece to steal. It's I huge. know. <laughs> but then but do you know what? The people who've stolen it are people like Napoleon and Hitler. So they're not, it's not a couple of guys going yes. in <laughs> dressed all in black with little masks over their face. These are like major they it was considered yeah, spoils of war. It was very much coveted. I think maybe again, going back to what George Clooney said, when you think about the people who are trying to steal it. None of them were good Catholics. They actually were <laughs> stridently anti-Catholic. And so it could have been like capturing the flag kind of thing on the Catholic Church. I don't know. And it's interesting to see how large pieces are made and the fact that you can see the way that they took it apart to try to yeah. steal it, bury it, and all that. Yeah. Back in the movie, backtracking just a little, when we get introduced to Claire and Stahl... I see you, Stahl. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. I just loved her character in this, just how strong she was and just quietly doing her do- her job and her little cohort and spitting in the champagne glass. That was so, so gross. <laughs> <laughs> Even so, if I didn't like somebody, yeah. I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> so with museum experience, Thomas, have you ever had big people come through looking for collection pieces and... For no. spitting a champagne glass. <laughs> We've had big people come through who we expected would make a generous donation to the museum, but not yeah. would steal stuff. In fact, in, it's interesting when I w- had my last museum job, part of what I was doing was actually repatriation of human remains. In the previous century, anthropology was sometimes no better than grave robbing. And a lot of indigenous people's patrimony, including the bodies of their ancestors, were simply dug up and taken by European explorers without their permission. And especially here in the United States, there are laws saying that 
if a Native American tribe requests yeah. its remains back, we have to give them back. And part of what I was doing is that we had arrangements with certain tribes where we could make electronic CT scans of human remains. So we would still have very detailed records of these specimens for scientific purposes because CT technology, especially micro CT, is so sophisticated now that it's like having the object just as a 3D model. And we would do that before repatriating the, the remains to their rightful owners. So it's like the opposite of what's going on here. And when that, that first scene in the museum, as soon as I saw the big guy in the blue coat, I'm like, Ermengoring. <laughs> I know that that shade of egg blue coat. There's yeah. only one Nazi who wears a coat like that, and it's Ermengoring. And he was one of the people really behind this whole art theft. And for him, it was personal. He wanted to hang them in his house. He wanted to give them to his wife, his second wife, really, and have these hang in his mansion. Goering was really a Jabba the Hutt type figure. <laughs> not just because of his size, but because of his extravagant, opulent lifestyle. That yeah, he and I think he fancied himself quite a sophisticated. Yes, a sophisticated. Man. When yeah. a lot of people who knew him just thought he was a bore and not <laughs> very sophisticated <Which> is, <laughs> at all. So yeah, wait, if he's Jabba the Hutt, does that make Hitler Thrawn? <laughs> no, oh, no, 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 because no. Hitler is not a military <laughs> genius. That's <laughs> true. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thrawn is more like Rommel. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah Ermin, Ermin Hitler is more is, like, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. And I know, oh, I can't remember his name in uh, Darth Vader's right hand man. Super oh, skinny. Maximilian Veers? No, no. I think you're thinking of, oh, not, yeah, now I can't even remember. I know. I know. Oh, I, I, we'll get it. We'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Three o'clock this morning, I'll remember. Yeah. I know, I know. yeah. <laughs> I'll be sure to text you. <laughs> but so yeah, you could, how... you could just see I, uh, the cold, quiet fury in Kate Blanchett's character's face while the, all this is going on. Because she yeah. knows she can't really do much about it. it yeah. She can't stop it from happening. Only kind of tra as it's revealed later, she's been tracking where all these objects go. And it's terrible because even though she doesn't want any of this, of this to happen, there's nothing she could do about it. As soon as Paris liberated, she gets imprisoned as a collaborator. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, the one time she did try to stop it from happening was when Stahl calls her out on it and says, your brother's been killed. And guess what we found he had? The art. Yeah. And how would he know where the art is? I thought, wow. Yeah. That was a chilling moment watching her like under his questioning. Oh, my But it gosh. also shows her self-control. And this is how she was able to do what she did for such a long time, because of course the real Claire spoke fluent German, but she didn't let them know that. That's how she was able to get all of this information. She was happy to let them think she was, didn't understand. And because it's a bit tricky, if you can understand a language, you don't want to give that information away all the time. So the fact that she had the self-discipline and the self-control to constantly not respond if they said something to her, because I would imagine that they would say things like, oh, is she listening? Does she understand? And to not respond to that. And so her reaction or lack thereof when she found out that her brother was killed and that his body was dumped in the same, that would devastate anybody. But she held it together. So that to me was um, a real insight to what a strong and, and savvy 
spy. She was. And sticking with her storyline, when James finally gets to her after his adventures across Paris and being told over and over again to stop speaking French, which I can relate to, (laughs) speak no other language but barely Michigander. (laughs) But I felt like the second or third time I watched it, something really stuck out with me. And that was when she was trying to see if she could trust Jane, you know, who's to say you're not just some other museum guy trying to take all of our stuff. Yeah, and you're from the Met. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. from the Met. You know. But I think in a way, it bothered me at first that she was flirting so much with him knowing he was married. But then I'm like, wait a minute. She's doing this in a way almost to test him. Is he going to be like every other guy and go along with the flirting? Or is he going to be a man who's true? And if he's true to his vocation as a married man, he'll be true to the art. And it wasn't until I think she saw that in him that she brought out her book where she said, this is my life. So I thought that was an interesting way to see that relationship change. Yeah. And I think also with her greatest power was the fact that she was dismissed by the Nazis. That was her greatest strength because she could move around and do things and they would never, you know, they never knew that she spat in their champagne. <laughs> I don't you know. know. He looked it, like he liked the taste. Like she uh, was he's so she icky did. pooky. Yeah. <laughs> I just, <laughs> but no, it was. And also, if you remember, she saw, not that this is giving too much away with the film, when he found just a very simple, not a famous piece of art, when they finally did find a lot of the possessions of the Jewish people who had been imprisoned or killed, most likely. And he found where this portrait belonged of just, it was just a woman. And he found the flat where they were in. And I think that was also a turning point for her where she thought, he thought, she thought, okay, this man is different. He's not just somebody else coming in to loot. Could be anybody, but he was a man of integrity. And we know that not all the allies were interested in returning the art because we have the Soviets also in this movie who are going to do exactly just what the Nazis did and steal it all as war booty because they felt they were like they say in the movie, they have 20 million dead. And so they feel they're owed. They're owed the spoils as revenge loot. Yeah. Retribution. Retribution. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The seeds of the Cold War are being planted before it's over. They're like, we never really trusted them, but it only really comes out towards the end. (laughs) Allies of convenience. And nothing more. Exactly. So one of my favorite scenes, besides having Claire yell, I see you, Stahl, was when they catch up with him again. (laughs) Yes. So we go from the awesome dentist scene, which was classic. My uh, grandmother actually used to work as a dental kind of hygienist when she was in high school. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, there was... No Novocaine. It was just rip it out and go and mallets flying and things like that. So I was laughing seeing it played out the way they did. But to have that whole thing come full circle was just fabulous. Yeah. I have to say with the dentist scene, that just was a throwback. You know, that had to be Bill Murray's homage to Little Shop of Horrors when he (laughs) was the dentist, the dental patient for Steve Martin's sadistic dentist. I think they did that on purpose and had Bill Murray be the patient. But yes, you're right. Oh, gosh, we should talk about some of the little the teams going out two by two. The little buddy teams. Yeah. Yeah. The buddies. Oh, my gosh. They were really good. 
Really oh, good. And I highly recommend for people to look up the YouTube behind the scenes. The scenes with Bill and Bob behind the scenes were just hilarious. And they teamed those two up together just because of the height difference. George Clooney said it made it very difficult for him to get them in camera shots together. But he just loved it. And I think the uh, little helmet, little buddy thing was all (laughs) ad-libbed. Classic tall guy, short guy routine. I know. With with the short guy being the feisty one. (laughs) Can I shoot someone? Because I want (laughs) to shoot people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but that was, they were, I think they were my favorite. I don't know, John Goodman and I guess the Desjardins, I don't remember his first name, that one, they just had, they, the chemistry with all of these guys was so good. It's like you could believe that, okay, after the war, these guys are going to be getting together at least once a year with their families. And do you know what I mean? They just looked like that they really bonded as characters, but yeah, so it was full question. circle. Do you have any insights on that whole, the horse scene and having, would it even be possible to have troops like that hiding in the trees so close to each other, just waiting on who's going to move first? From what I've read, I don't know exactly where they're supposed to be. And I think that scene takes place after the Normandy breakout. But during the fighting in Normandy, the region, not on the beaches, but once they're in the hedgerow country, things like that would happen where there would be an American unit and a German unit in hedgerows on opposite sides of the field. And it's almost like playing chicken. Who's going to come out first or who's going to shoot first? And there could be units right on top of each other sometimes because in in the hedgerow, everything's divided into these little parcels of land the hedgerows, it's not just you think bushes, but it's like really thick, ancient foliage with a ditch and a dike and stuff. You can't see very far and it's, it could be very easy to bump into an enemy unit or even a friendly unit without knowing it. But I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, but this is after Normandy and I'm not sure where they are. But I know that analogous things did happen. And I've read stories, too, of like people just accidentally wandering into <laughs> An area that they don't know is about to become a war zone. Yeah. It's supposed yeah. to be there. Tell Not knowing where they are, I want to bring up a map. Okay. So, Can I just say, I know what wouldn't be there. That horse wouldn't would, be there. With all that tense, the horse would be smelling all that adrenaline. The horse would be oh, way gone. Yeah, it would have been gone <laughs> a long time before. Yeah. One thing about locations, before we reference the map, I don't know much about electronics technology from the time but they seem they appear to have a magic radio with unlimited (laughs) range where they can be in in completely different countries and still pick up one another loud and clear with no interference and i was like go into that but i just didn't know what it was a magic radio what on the ring because like i said my, my grandfather worked on wireless radios but those were giant towers with aerials on them this is just like a box with a handy. And I'm like, yeah, huh? I'm like, I feel like that was done for plot convenience so that they can have the characters talk to one another. Yeah. while being It's like the communicate. They were like communicators on, on Star Trek. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, Star Trek. <laughs> Unlimited power. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Catherine. Yeah. Oh, no, that's quite all right. No, because yeah. you'd mentioned what, like, where were they and where were they going? That was right after they had gone to Ghent. So they're in and around Belgium, Ghent. And then that's when they had found out that they heard that it was heading to Merkers. 
And I'm pronouncing it like John Goodman did. I don't know if that's the right way, Alex, is it? No. I think Merkers is okay. Merkers, but Merkers, <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. So, yeah, so they were somewhere along the way there. So, yeah, I made sure to, like, I always love maps. I like to know where things are happening and why. Probably got that ground into me through doing different Bible studies and stuff. Look at the map. Find out where all this is at. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so we have James in Paris with Claire. And Stahl was somewhere around there, wherever. I wonder where his farm was. How far away did he get? <laughs> and then good old Donald, who had gone to Burgess to be with the Madonna. We got to talk about that was probably the most tear-jerking moment of that whole film. Yeah. That was so just, the, he was Bruce, sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that was just, oh my goodness. Yes. And I would say this. One of the things, and I love this about Our Lady, she's all over the place in this film. This is such a Marian film. And what I love about the character of Donald, uh, Donald Jeffries. Donald Jeffries, yeah. That was a really beautiful scene. And it's one of these things that has stood out in my mind for years. I saw Monuments Men many years ago, and but whenever I would, if... It happened to come up in conversation or something. This is the scene that always stood out in my mind. It's when he finally sees the Madonna and he takes off his hat. He smooths his hair. He's getting himself all gussied up for Our Lady. And I thought, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and he, and he it's interesting as well because of the history of Donald. He, was, he seemed to be a little bit of a disappointment to himself and maybe everybody else, but he was so likable because there was a goodness to him. He was probably a bit of a romantic, and that's probably why he was the way he was. And he died protecting his lady. And I just think that was beautiful. And I just think when he's there, because they did take it, they did, the statue of the Madonna was taken by the Nazis. And he sat there no, dying, knowing that like Boromir, when yeah. Mary and Pippin yes. were taken away and yes. he was dying. It was that same kind of beautiful tragedy and redemption of, of a good man that wasn't always good. And I just thought, oh, I'm sure our lady was like, Get up here. You <laughs> Thank you for that, son. But it just, that relationship, that interaction, again, with a beautiful image of Our Lady and the Christ child and how he was interacting. It, it wasn't just a piece of a block of marble. This was an interaction with something living, something beautiful. Now, Thomas, in the books, did they talk a lot about the obstacles the, the monuments men had to overcome? Like in this case, Donald was told, no, we're not doing anything with that. We're not going to go oh, in there. Yeah. We've got a deal worked out. So I don't know. What did you think of that like, in portion the book, of it? In the book, they go a lot more into it. And I know even at the beginning when, when Stokes, George Clooney's character, first gets there, there's the officer who doesn't want anything to do with him. And it's just saying, I'm not risking men's lives for a church tower. Go away. And it was funny because when I was watching that scene, I'm like, OK, I would have said, OK, I got these orders from someone a lot higher than you. So am I supposed to go back to them and say, you are not willing to carry out these orders, which I'm delivering to you? But in any case, the, the, the guy was stonewalling him. And in the book, the, there's a lot of that, you know, like the military people just wanted to, to get the war over and done with you know, at that point. And there was and they really didn't have a whole lot of resources. I, I think in real life, they had a bigger team than just 
the guys who are in the handful of guys who are. Yeah, in the movie. there are about a thousand. There are about a thousand mm. monument men and a number of monument women as well. Oh, that yeah. That, I'm starting to remember that from the book as well. Yeah, but still, in terms of the entire Allied war effort, they were working on a shoestring, and had to go up a lot against a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy. I like when they finally get to the mine. The brass Patton and whatnot and Eisenhower only show up when suddenly. they find all that gold. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, suddenly they're there. Yeah. yeah and they're exactly. like, they weren't interested in the art. But as soon as we found gold bullion, they're like, all right, let's take credit. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yes. This well, is talking about effort. the mine. Here we have a wonderful picture of them finding the Madonna or Lady and Child. And Madonna them. of Bruges, I think is what it's called. Yes. The, yeah. And, uh. There it is in its place, back where it belongs. Yeah. Beautiful piece. Yeah. And you can see why they had that character so taken with her. Because it's just such, it's one of those pieces you just stare at for a while. Yeah. And you can really see the echoes of the Pieta. Yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. You can really see that. Probably to see both of them together would have been quite striking. I don't know if they were ever together. But you notice they foreshadowed it in the movie. When Walter How? was holding Jean in the back of the truck, they yes. had they were in a yes. Pieta type arrangement. Right. I thought See? that was so perfectly done. See, that's how that's why I had to go load my dishwasher. That's the part I left because <laughs> it was sad. I had to fast forward the third time just so I could get to my notes. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. No, you're right. That's beautiful. Yeah. Like I said, this Mayor, Our Lady is all over this movie, and they didn't even know it. That's what I like about it. The <laughs> one funny thing in the movie, from a Catholic perspective for me, was every time when they found it, they came around the corner and they look at it and realize what they have. They're all like, <laughs> Jesus. I'm like, yes, it's... <laughs> You're right. And his mother. <laughs> yes. Well, and I love how when they're actually moving her in the in the film, they had her in, a, in, I guess, one of those cars on a track in the mine. But when they did find her, she's all they were just finding like this Belgian lace it, it, pillows and things to pack around her. Because, of course, even moving that that statue, the, this is something I'm sure, Thomas, you know this about working in a museum. Vibration and movement really matters to an artifact and you've got to be so careful. And can you imagine they were probably holding their breaths trying to get out of that mine with that statue? Like and sometimes I have a, I'm shaking my fist at earlier curators <laughs> who didn't pack stuff well. And I open a drawer that's not been opened in decades and everything smashed to bits. And I'm like, why did you just pack it loose? Why didn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, part one of my jobs before I was working with, repatriation of human remains, one of my earlier jobs was rehousing specimens, Mm, both doing triage and trying to repair stuff that had been housed very poorly and then making archival housings for things so that we would eliminate as much vibration as we could. Yeah. So could you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. Moving that thing in a mine. I actually went on (laughs) Google Maps and I wanted to know how far the statue was transported. And by today's standards, to go from Belgium down to, um, it was in Altusay, right? When they said that in the movie? Yep, in that salt mine. 
is over 10 hours. So what was it like back then to haul that thing, knowing they first put it in, what, like an ambulance truck? I don't know if they eventually put it on a train to move it faster, but... They couldn't. And everything's bone to pieces. The Reichsbahn, the National Railway, had already been completely obliterated by the Allies. They were... By this point in the war, I don't think there were any, there were hardly any trains working in inside of Germany. Like, yeah, and the roads were all by truck. Yeah, <laughs> the roads and, and would the be roads, terrible. Yeah. Exactly. If it was a road. Yeah. So it's almost a miracle it's, she survived. Exactly. And then how about the scene where they then finally discover the Ghent altarpiece? Where we have our little buddy I group. Love that. It's right here. It's right here. This <laughs> is here. This is here. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, it's right there. Using <laughs> it as a table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I hope they weren't. Do you know what? I look right. at that. I'm like, I yeah. really hope that nobody was doing that. But I feel like yeah. that was just a funny thing for the movie. Yeah, yeah the but movie. it was oh, good. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, and yeah, it was when, when he, he dropped his pen <laughs> to go under the table. Mm-hmm. And again, such a Marion moment because I just feel like, and especially we'll be talking about some of these really interesting ways that Our Lady just lets us know she's around in art. She just sits there. Yep, here I am. <laughs> just very quietly. Yeah. Does this make you cringe, Thomas, seeing everything just stacked here and there, trying to get it all packed away? <laughs> yeah. And with art. At least if it's like with some natural history specimens, if something gets broken, I'm like, okay, I have at least a dozen more of these in the collection. But it's not like you have multiples of the Gent altarpiece. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there's one Van Eyck altarpiece. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's crazy. So were there any other moments that you guys really loved from the movie that you just made your day just to see or a quote or anything that stuck with you? I have one thing from the beginning that I was very impressed with in terms of detail. So when they showed the face of the lamb on the from the adoration of the lamb altarpiece, it was the pre-restoration image of the lamb, not the post. So it was restored, I think in 2000, I think it was Finished, it had been finished being restored in, let me just check, in 2019, 2012 to 2016. They did restoration work on it. I and have a the picture. Face, yeah, the face of the lamb looks very different. So, yeah, so like the one on the left, that is the pre-restoration lamb. And then the one on the right is what Van Eyck made it, Van Eyck made it painted it originally. And if you notice the one on the left, it looks much more lamb-like. It looks much more like an undulate with the eyes on the side and the one on the right, the eyes are very much forward. And there's a reason for all that, but we're not going to talk about it now. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. I we talk about, about the Ghent. Yeah. 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 So I, the fact that they did that detail, I was impressed because I don't know how many people do know that and that it had been covered up probably around the Reformation this happened. And, and yeah, and it was at risk during the Reformation and also during the French Revolution, believe it or not, how they, again, the people who were trying to steal it and maim it, they weren't friends of the Catholic Church, that's for sure. But but they did alter it. If I ever paint anything that's noteworthy enough to be around for a couple hundred years, 
I would totally cringe if someone painted over it completely differently. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. really? Can you not see how it used to look? I <laughs> you know. You need to touch it up. Keep it the same. <laughs> but there's, a, do you know what? I think there's a reason why they changed it so much to make it look more animal-like. But anyway, but as I said, I just, I really respected that, that level of detail that they had in the film. They didn't have to do that at all. And it definitely wasn't a civics lesson. No, yeah. In terms of things that I noticed, the World War II geek in me was finding all these very interesting little things that I liked uh, that maybe other people wouldn't notice. Uh, n- notice that the little vehicle that they drive around in is not a Jeep. That ah. is actually a Kubelwagen. It's essentially the German equivalent of the Jeep. And I, oh, the and, one that they they said, oh, we've got a ride now or something. Yeah, like we've got a ride now. Oh, okay. And you can see how they've they've painted the American star on the side. And you can tell it's not official because it's lopsided. OK, but they painted okay. it so that they wouldn't be so that there wouldn't be any friendly fire incidents. But like all they could get was this captured German vehicle. Yeah. You know, so they, they didn't have a Jeep. They had the Kubelwagen instead. The scene where. They have to take out the sniper. Incidents like that did happen. By this point in the war, there were Hitler youth and quite a few of them fighting on the front lines because Germany had essentially run out of men and they're down to sending preteens to go and fight or old men from the Volkssturm. Yeah, yeah. So things like that would happen. I and I like that the kids just dragged up by the the scruff of his his shirt and just thrown in a with a bunch of other kids. Yeah, yeah. And also, his the reaction was like a dad. What are you doing? What are you doing out here? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, my my German teacher in high school. She grew up under Hitler's Reich, and her she had some really interesting stories from like the German perspective. And of course they were being told all kinds of propaganda, the civilians in Germany and her father who had lost his arm in world war one and her 12 year old brother were drafted. And her grandmother said, we are not winning this war. And she's like, how do you know? And she's, you do not draft one armed old men and boys if you're winning. Right. Yeah. And he never went to the front line. They were due to go to the front line. But his commanding officer, when he got the orders, it was towards the end of the war. He turned to his troop and said, I think the oldest ones were like 14 down to 12, 13, 14 years old. And he said, do any of you know how to get home? And they all raised their hands and he said, go. And he just let them go. He said, there's no way we're, we're losing this war. So it's quite, so when I saw that, I actually thought about my, my German teacher's brother. That could have been him. And what a different history their family would have had. Would have had, I know, yeah. Oh, and one more thing I noticed was, yeah, it, Hitler liked his little models of stuff. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> he had his, his chief architect was a guy called Albert Speer. And after the war, he tried to say, say, oh, I was just the architect. But actually, he had a much more influential role in the Nazi government. He started out as an architect, but he was basically made in charge of like munitions production by the end of it. But he Mm. built those little mock-up cities for Hitler of how he was going to rebuild the cities after the war. He had one of Berlin, which they were going to rename Germania 
and have all oh these ridiculous monuments and stuff. And yeah, Linz, which is a city not far from where Hitler grew up in Austria, he was going to rebuild and build that giant, mu- the Führer Museum, where he was going to put yeah. all this looted art. And yeah, he would spend hours just staring at it. <laughs> this is my future and stuff. Yeah, so, he was a megalomaniac. Maniac, but I think, yeah. And what I think is interesting is how he had this really, of course, it was a skewed perspective of what art was and how he wanted to prove that all of this was leading towards the Third Reich, which, of course, that's not how art works. But I think how he viewed art, this is what the the vast contrast that came out in the movie, I think, really well, especially with the Nero decree. When Hitler said, when, if I, if we start losing the war, then this all gets destroyed. And of course, then they show art getting destroyed. And it's really, it makes your stomach turn. You think what might have been lost. Although I was also thinking, oh, maybe people should start checking under their tables. You never know. It could be Raphael's self-portrait in there somewhere. But, but the idea that he wasn't preserving or desired these things that were beautiful for their sake, it was about power for him. And that's why he could destroy something that beautiful. It had nothing to do with what the transcendent elements of this artwork. It all was about power. And then you contrast that with the monuments men and what they were trying to do. They were risking their own lives for beauty, which is in Donald Jeffries. He did. He gave his life for beauty, as did John, the French member of the team. And that's quite a contrast between the two groups of people. And one of the things I wanted to actually bring up about this, which is really interesting, and it is definitely a testament to the Monuments Men after the war. And it's so watching the film, and I also watched like lots of lectures on this with the Soviets coming in and it was like this race against time. Who's going to get this? Who's going to get the prize first? And, but interestingly, it was the U.S. Army that had implemented a policy of retribution for German art. So they had, there were 202 pieces of German art that the U.S. military deemed would be a good They wanted to take it and bring it back to the United States and put these things in museums in the United States. And the monument men and women actually came up with the Wiesbaden Manifesto objecting to it. And they all signed it. And people were like outraged in the military, in the U.S. government, that they would dare say that this was wrong. So they were more... um, So there was this idea of retribution, even amongst the allies, even with the United States. But because the monument men were so focused on the art itself, and rather than retribution, they wanted, they wanted to reinstate it. Yeah, they wanted to, it was reinstitution and restoration, not retribution. And I think that, again, do you know, I think if, they had not won. They finally, in 1948, they, the army capitulated and these, this artwork was returned to Germany. But again, I'm thinking about how different history would have been if the United States had taken that as retribution. What, what would the, the Cold War and just things, history have been like after that? 
And their argument was, you're no better than the Nazis if you take this. Right, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I've been really reading powerful. recently a lot of journalism that was written at the time, World War II, opinion pieces, by the amount of bigotry against Germans as a people from American writers saying yeah. that, saying very similar kind of things like th that, like Germans are racially inferior. And that's why they accepted Nazism, that they need to be punished as a people. Yeah. This. And I'm like, yeah. and that they're, they're stupid. They have low intelligence and all this nonsense. And I'm like, but that's like what the Nazis are saying. Like, why? <laughs> yeah, you know? right. I was shocked. Yeah. Of course I knew people back then had prejudices, Yeah, you know, and I knew that there was a lot of racism in the Pacific against the Japanese. Yeah. I was surprised by how much, yeah, no, Germans are an inferior people that I was reading in, in, in stuff that was written in the 40s, written at the time. Not just in America, but in other European countries who were the victims of Nazi Germany. So that revenge was in the air. People yeah. wanted it. They wanted retribution for what it, essentially the rape of their countries. Yeah, you know? and absolutely. It, we're all infected by original sin. That desire to, to get back, to get even is yeah. there in us. Even yeah. in wars fought for the noblest reasons. You have yeah, to you be, can have disordered justice. Yeah. Well, yeah. obviously we found a great topic here. So <laughs> yeah. I feel like we could go on and on. Yes. There's one too. last slide I want to show. Oh. And these are the Monuments Men Congressional Gold Medals. And I'd say this has probably been the direct result of the film and the books that have allowed recognition for the work that the Monuments Men did. Yeah. And you can even tell what some of the artwork, you have the, the astronomer, astrologer. Yeah. Yeah, the astronomer. I always get it mixed up. I, not the astrologer, astronomer by Vandermeer. Yeah. You can tell. I like when you can tell what things are. Yeah. <laughs> on a yeah, metal because sometimes it's a little. Fabulous engraving work on this. They did. You can see our, yeah, you can see the Ghent altarpiece, David. Oh, the lady in the ermine. This is like a little bit of, yeah, a self a portrait of the Rembrandt. You know, we, who we didn't talk about and now it's too late. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about him, Catherine, when we talk about the Ghent altarpiece. Was the interpreter, you know, the young guy who was the interpreter. I like Sam. Him. I did too. Sam was one of my favorite characters. That's why I made sure to list Dimitri in the uh, cast when we yeah. talked about them. He was did such a fabulous job throughout the whole movie. And he's actually the one character that close, most closely relates to an actual Monuments Men. And there's okay. wonderful footage. I think I put a link to it with our show notes that uh, you get to hear him talk about what life was like and his family getting out of Germany before things all went crazy and everything he got to do going back and helping the Monuments Men. It's really fascinating. Yeah, he was just so clever. That's what I loved about him. Again, he was, I don't want to say a foil, but maybe that's the word for Claire's character. Because he was, remember when he was leaning up, they had caught a bunch of German soldiers and they were trying to speak in very bad German to the soldiers and they weren't saying anything. And he just sat and listened and, oh, this is the captain. They switched. Yeah. And they're talking about mines. Everything's in the mines. Yeah. Yeah. I do have to say one last thing. I could say so many things. This is not <laughs> going to be the last thing, but let's pretend that it is. Okay. Uh, 
when they were going to that one mine and it looked like they had blown it up and they were, it was a race against time with, because the Soviets were moving in that. So that was part of the Nero decree and the commanding officer who was given those orders, he was like a real fanatic and he was fine with destroying everything. And it wasn't the people of the town who blew up just the entryways to make the, the, to make the Nazis think that it had all been destroyed. It was actually his troops. They were like, you're crazy. We are not destroying this. So they actually disobeyed ordered orders and blew up the entry of the tunnels to make him think it had been done. Yeah, I, I think the guy who received the orders, he was the local Gauleiter, right? Who was the, they're the Nazi yeah. governors. And I think they're, in another Star Wars reference, the Gauleiters, I think, are essentially what the moths in Star Wars are based off. Yeah. These regional yeah. governors and they're super Nazi fanatics. Yeah, it was moth, moth. by Hitler. Yeah, I was thinking, that guy was thinking, it's not Moff Gideon. It was the moth who was with Oh, Darth you're talking Vader. about Tarkin. 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 Yeah, Grandma. That's who I was <laughs> <laughs> We finally came back around to that. Oh, full circle, full the circle. The circle is now complete. Around. Yes, in, right. a, in a galaxy far away. There you go. All oh right. Gosh. We brought this full circle and let's get full circle right to our patrons. Because okay. we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make all this possible for creating Secrets of Sacred Art and the Secrets of TV and Movies, including Denise I, Joseph L., Louis D., JP, and Mary Ann R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So this marks the end of our first season of Secrets of Sacred Art. Alex and I will be going on a brief hiatus and we're going to record a bunch of more episodes to unearth more hidden treasures and history and deeper meanings. There's so much out there to explore. And we'd really like you to jump on, look for previous episodes of Secrets of Sacred Art and TVs and movies or anything that Thomas has been on is fabulous. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And so please visit us at sqpn.com slash sacred art. And you can also email us at sacredart at sqpn.com or follow StarQuest on social media. We have Facebook at StarQuest or facebook.com. StarQuest slash StarQuest Media, Twitter X, whatever it's called now. And join our Discord community. That's the easiest, most fun way. So please jump in at sqpn.com slash Discord. We would love to, for future episodes, have you tell us if maybe your church, your parish, your diocese has some hidden treasure, maybe something that was rescued from war. We would love to hear about it so we can do fascinating episodes about finding these treasures. And yeah. I'd like to and check thank your you. dining tables. Yes, flip your dining yeah. table over, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although when we were little, we used to color on my grandma's bottom side of her dining table, and we were all sad nobody saved it for the future yeah. reference. <laughs> <laughs> but Thomas, I'd like to thank you for joining us on our little special crossover event here. Thank you. This is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really, it was a lot of fun, and as I said, it was really lovely meeting you. You as well. Alex, great way to wrap up the first season, right? I know. Oh, my gosh. Wow. (laughs) And like we always say on Secrets of Sacred Art, we hope you find something beautiful. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
there's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who. We'd like to thank Patrick McCaffrey of Moonshadow Studios for editing this episode. To have your audio edited professionally and with care, check out more of Patrick's work at moonshadowstudios.biz. That's moonshadowstudios.biz. 